Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to uh, write a dissertation, uh, apply for jobs, raise a child, and survive the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, today, I am very happy uh, to introduce my longtime friend, Brendan McElmeal, um, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Washington and a historian of the Soviet Union and of comparative gender and sexuality. Um, but Brendan and I, um, I'm also Brendan, so it might be a little confusing, and I'm also Brendan M. But this other historian, Brendan M, and I go way back. Brendan M, do you remember when you met me? Because um, I don't. I don't remember when we met. No, I don't remember when we met you specifically, but I remember... Um, Early on, we ran into each other at a bookstore and you were buying a Braudel book. And I was very confused why someone would just like pick up Braudel and read it. Let's, we're historians here, Brendan. When was this? <laughs> right. So this was um, many years ago, over 10. Was this 10 years ago now in South this Korea? Was over 10 years uh, ago, 2009, I think. Yeah. And like yeah. this is when I learned that you were also an historian or an aspiring historian as well. So. I, I wasn't an, an aspiring historian back then. I just, I wanted to be a novelist. I was an aspiring novelist. I just kind of read history for fun. I think if you're reading the Annales School for fun, you're already an aspiring historian, whether you realize it or not. People have said that, but <laughs> Burdell's great. It's a really, like, I don't understand why people think, like, it's it's really fun to read Burdell. Everyone should. It's one of my big recommendations to my undergrads. But I, I we we bonded over. Uh, we read uh, Das Kapital together uh, and and got drunk a lot while 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 reading it together. Yes, which makes it go, especially those first couple chapters, makes them go much more easily. I think uh, I don't remember much about Das Kapital, so <laughs> a firm friendship was forged. Um, but you're not in South Korea and you're not in Washington. Where are you right now? Yeah, so I'm in Russia. I came here to do my PhD research last year, and I kind of got stuck during the pandemic. Um, and so I'm still here, although I'm finally planning my trip back home. Wow. And how long have you been here? Like like a, a, over a year? Yeah, so I came at the, in the beginning of April, and I've been here since then, like uh, April a year ago. Wow. And and so your 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 research is on sex in the Soviet Union and and I'm a little surprised because like I you know I'm I'm in my mind the 1960s and 1970s like in America and Britain is like this colorful tie-dyed orgy where people are listening to cool music and like you know, having free love and all that. But at the same time, my, my, uh, you know, in my mind's eye in Russia, it's just like this concrete brutalist monstrosity, <laughs> like where there isn't any sex, but I, uh, that's, that's my, like my, you know, my, my naive view, but I know that people had to have sex. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this, but first, first, like, tell us about the time period that we're dealing with. You've, you, you call, you've called it in, in conversations with me offline, the thaw. When, when is the thaw? What is it? And, and what's the Soviet Union? Okay. Yeah. So these are big questions. Uh, and this, this question of what is the thaw, I think makes more sense in the context of what the Soviet Union is more broadly. Um, so this is, you know, the state that is, uh, formed on the rubble of the Russian Empire, which collapsed under the weight of World War I. And there was a brief you know, republic that kind of was created de facto after the abdication of the emperor in March 1917. By October, one of the more radical left groups, the Bolsheviks, uh, stages a coup, uh, which they call a revolution. And 
In their defense, they have pretty broad popular support in the end, it seems. They're claiming to be defending the revolution against potential counter-revolution or just the intransigence of this provisional government. And they want all power to the Soviets, which is the Russian word for council. So like during the uprising of the industrial revolution in February, they were just popular councils, first of factory workers, later of peasants and soldiers. And they basically said, these are the people who created the revolution. They're the ones who should have the authority. Um, And then in the ensuing conflict, a civil war breaks out. And the Soviet Union is the state that comes out of that civil war, really. The the pro-Bolshevik forces win that civil war, and they create the Soviet Union in 1922 as its ending. Okay, there's a a little bit of confusion that I have about where exactly this is, because we we talk about Russia, and I I kind of know where that is. And then there's this other place called the Russian Empire, and then there's like the Soviet Union has a lot of places that aren't Russia. Just tell me a little bit about how that works. Yeah, so the Russian Empire is bigger than what Russia is today. It's it's stretched from in Europe, the, like East Central Europe, so Eastern Poland and Finland, Moldova and Ukraine were all part of the Russian Empire, and stretched across Eurasia to the Pacific Ocean, and in the south, as far south as the Central Asian republics like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and in the Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia. And, and this is a dumb question, but they, they don't speak Russian in all those countries, right? No, they don't speak Russian. Uh, they don't, they're not all one religion, right? There's Muslims and Buddhists and Orthodox Christians and Catholics and uh, like shamanistic religions, like all mixed together. And they all, in theory, were held together by their relationship to the emperor in Petersburg. And so when, when, when yeah. so just to set the stage, we have this Russian empire ruled by an emperor, a czar. And then you have a big revolution and the, they, the, the new state ruled by the Bolsheviks under like a, a, a communist ideal. It, it, does it include all those different countries or is it just Russia under a different name? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, part of the revolutionary process was also these national revolutions. Nation, the idea of nationalism had been floating about in the empire uh, for some time. And a part of the civil war was, you know, not just one group against the other, but like multiple groups all fighting at each other at the same time. And some of these included national revolutions, uh, including in Poland and Finland, which become their own countries. Um, and in other places, like in Central Asia, a lot of local intellectuals are interested in national projects there. And over the course of the civil war and in, in places like Central Asia, even into the early earlier into the 1920s, they're still trying to work this out. But the idea of the Soviet Union is to create national republics that are national in form. So they are like new national states based on the national groups of the empire, or at least the ones that were deemed big enough to get their own state, that are all together united in the communist project in this one sort of alliance, this union. Okay. And and so when I think of the USSR in the 20th century, like in my head, it's Lenin, who's like a bald guy, and then it's Stalin. Um, and it's a bunch of purges and like, you know, grim stuff happening. Um, lots of political killings, like, uh, you know, a lot of like repression and totalitarianism. Like, that's the image that I have of Russia for the entire 20th century and the Soviet Union, excuse me, for the entire 20th century. Um, tell me a little bit. Let's jump ahead 
to talk a little bit about the thaw. What's the thaw? Right. So the the thaw is this period after Stalin dies. And uh, so this image that you have of, you know, purges and, you know, political terror and violence uh, is appropriate, like more to the Civil War period and to the parts of the Stalin period. And the thaw is a time when there is a conscious effort to move away from that uh, sort of image of socialism and and from the policies that gave us that image in the first place. I mean, I mean that is arguably a, a simplistic image also of the Stalin years, but it's most appropriate to those years uh, versus the others. And so after Stalin dies, immediately there is a, a retreat on some of the, the repressive uses of power that this... Um, there's this institution that we even use this Russian word in English now, the Gulag, which is an acronym for essentially um, state uh, like labor camps. Hmm. And they immediately on Stalin's death, they amnesty a bunch of people who have been sent to the Gulag. Um, in fact, if anybody's seen this um, kind of silly comedy, British comedy, the, the death of Stalin, they show this moment. And it's very cynical portrayal, which is what makes it a you know successful comedy. Um, but there is this idea that is was popular in Russia at the time that one of the reasons for this amnesty was just part of the political intrigues among the party of who's going to be the next Stalin. Okay. So Beria, who was then the head of the secret police, is the one who, you know, who orchestrated much of the terror immediately before. Says, "Oh, okay, uh, actually, we went too far. We should free all these people." And what years are we talking about here? So this is in 1953. So Stalin dies in 1953, and immediately when Stalin dies, uh, a bunch of the people who were the bad guys, like Beria, are starting to to, to roll back um, some of the worst excesses of the totalitarianism of the of the of the Stalin years. That's correct. Yeah. So, and there, it's not really clear. Like eventually, Nikita Khrushchev is going to become the next kind of leader of the party. Um, it's not really clear in the beginning, and there's a and a period of collective leadership with several of the, the guys who are sort of in Stalin's inner circle. Um, so they they turn on Beria pretty quickly and they they turn on the, I, I don't want to say they turn on the security services, but they um, they bring the secret police or the security services sort of subordinate to the party in a way that they weren't before um, uh, right away. And then after they execute Beria, they sort of end political executions. Mm. And then by 1956, it's pretty clear that Nikita Khrushchev has the votes to sort of be the leader of the party. And he solidifies his position by criticizing Stalin more openly than anyone has before. Although he does it secretly in a, in a speech called the secret speech. Um, but he gives it at a party conference and Initially, there's a plan to disseminate it in newspapers, and they decide not to do that. But a couple of newspapers never got the memo, and so it got published in like Mongolia, I think, in mm-hmm. Poland or somewhere. And then quickly, somehow, the New York Times gets it, and it's you know the jig is up. But it wasn't that secret anyway. Like the the young communist groups throughout the Soviet Union were, were meant to read it and discuss it in their meetings, like secret within the party, but. This period of the thaw we've been talking about, are, we, we've been mostly talking about like political changes, like changes to uh, uh, the leadership of the of the of the party of the of the of the ruling class, uh, changes to some of the ways that 
uh, crime and punishment are administered. How, how, how does this, does this fall period? Like when I think of fall, I, I, it sounds to me like it's something that's, that's wider in society. Like, like in my imagination, it's like that, that, you know, things are kind of loosening up on the streets. Is this, is this true? Yeah, to some extent it is. And so, and in fact, we get this, the image or this word, the thaw from a novel that was written at the time um, by Ilya Ehrenberg called The Thaw. And the, the idea is that culture as well is really loosening. And one of the reasons that that uh, image has taken hold and has been so popular, especially with intellectuals and writers, is that this, um, one of the places where this really was pretty true is culture and literature and film. Hmm. And so the, the range of what was possible to, to produce in Soviet art, what it was possible to say in public, um, in art and in discussions of art, you know, literary criticism was very popular. And the, the, so the range of, like under Stalin, there was sort of an official uh, style of art called socialist realism. And the range of what you could call socialist realism or how much you could criticize socialist realism really opens up even in 1953, like months after Stalin's death, there's this lovely essay written by a film grad student named Olga Shmarova that's uh, on those who do not love to talk about love. <laughs> and it's all about how love in Stalin-era film is silly because the characters are too simplistic and like uh, we need to talk more seriously about love. Uh, and I, I, loved, I bring this up because... Uh, this moment of there's sort of a thought in literature is usually attributed to a different essay called On Sincerity in Literature by a man, Vladimir Pomerantsev, who's more famous, who was, you know, already more successful than a graduate student. Um, but uh, Shmarova's essay was first by a few months. Hmm. And they both are basically criticizing the, the silliness of this socialist realism, uh, particularly in how it portrayed individuals without a lot of you know complexity inside. Okay, so so in the field of culture, there's a thaw because people are able to, like, they they had to do a bunch of silly things in their movies and their their music to to satisfy this ideological, you know, genre of socialist realism, right? So they had to. I, I'm imagining like all the heroes were like rugged peasants who read Marx and who were pure of heart and defeated you know, hook-nosed capitalists <laughs> through through the power of cooperation, right? Is that is that socialist realism in the Stalin era? Yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, and there, there's a lot of heroics. Um, a lot of times the heroics, especially in the films, gets um, pretty brutal. There's a lot of, like, people getting maimed. And, uh, mm. you know, there's a really interesting book about this, about sort of the image of masculinity in a genre where the male hero often ends up like losing limbs by the end of it. And what does that mean? Um, but, but yeah, I mean, essentially you're right. It's like, there's not a lot of complexity, especially in the portrayal of like the interhuman relationships in these, these films. And, 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 but so what you're talking about isn't culture and it isn't politics. You're talking about everyday life. So, so tell me a little bit about how previous historians have looked at everyday life in the thaw did people think that everyday life was thawing as well did they just ignore it or or do they think it's just the same old concrete brutalist stuff that 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 brendan mackey has in his imagination <laughs> yeah well so the thaw was not just like on this realm of culture and politics but also or like sort of mixed in with that is a lot of reforms to 
um, you know, policies that affected people's everyday lives. In particular, you know, there was a shift, you know, Khrushchev's consolidation of power in part dealt, um, was due to the fact that he was a bit of a populist and he not only, you know, criticized Stalin increasingly publicly, but also uh, tried to shift investment from heavy industry and the military to con- producing more like consumer goods and especially mm-hmm. more housing. And so mm-hmm. Stalin built a lot of really beautiful, uh, like big buildings in the late forties and early fifties, they call it the Stalin imperial style. And it's under Khrushchev that you get these concrete slabs that you're, uh, so worried about, right? Um, I know they, they look gray and boring to us today, but to the people for whom that was their first house, uh, it was a pretty big deal. And this was, they built more apartments, like individual apartments for families and more quickly than any human society before, um, possibly since, although I think they might have been beaten by China at this point. Okay, so 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 part, part of the thaw is that you shift from you know, big factories making big things like steel and boats and guns and railroads to changing the economy to make more consumer goods on the one hand, and particularly to build housing. And I love this example of, of what in my mind is, is, is representative of, of, of oppressive um, totalitarianism, the big concrete brutalist apartment building. But you're saying, actually, this is something that's a that's a good for a lot of people that changes people's everyday lives. Like you have, like the big gray apartment buildings are, you know, modern, easy to maintain, easy to build, and you can build them big. And that means a lot of people are getting housing that previously they had to share. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Right. So they, um, yeah, like the reason they are kind of standardized and boring looking and big is that um, they're building these all over the Soviet Union. Uh, and in fact, not just the Soviet Union, they're building similar houses in the Eastern Bloc countries in, uh, in Europe as well. So from Poland, from East Germany, even all the way to Vladivostok on the Pacific, you have these apartment, like standardized apartment buildings being built. And in fact, they look very similar to public housing being built in Western Europe and the United States at this time as well. This is also just part of the era. Um, and it's, it's about functionality. It's about building as many apartments as possible quickly. And in fact, the, the first generation of these are only five stories. They're not that ugly. Some of them are even built out of brick. Uh, hmm. The key is, yeah, they're the first individual houses for people who had previously been living in barracks, especially if they're living far from Moscow. And some of these towns where they're building steel in the 1930s, uh, those towns sprung up very quickly because they needed uh, towns and factories close to the the mines where they're getting the ore, and people were living in barracks in like huts, like really really bad conditions, and so now they're being able to move into apartments, or they might have been living in communal apartments, and now they get their own apartment for their family. Yeah. This is still one or two rooms for the whole family, which. Uh, could also be pretty cramped, but like say, it's a lot better than before when they had to share it with multiple families. So, so how have historians understood everyday life in this time period? Is it, 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 we've talked about buildings, we've talked about culture, we've talked about politics. What about like what people, you know, both you and I in our research, we, we do a lot with this thing, everyday life, which is, you know, in some ways a confusing term, but, but have people studied it before in, in the thaw and what do they think what is happening to people's everyday lives? 
Let's see where to begin. Yeah. So I think part of the part of this image of the thaw also comes from the fact that people's everyday life is uh, seems to be uh, getting better. Although it's when we look back at it now, it looks like still a pretty austere existence. Um, you, if you'd be sharing an apartment with you know one bedroom and one kitchen, and you still have a family of three or four, that looks pretty pretty rough. Uh, but if you would come from a small village or you'd come from a place where you'd been living, if you'd been living in a communal apartment, that would be pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, this is also a time when there's a massive amount of migration to the cities from the countryside. Uh, the, the Soviet Union really becomes an urban country uh, in the late 60s. And so there are a lot of people who are just coming to the city for the first time. And those people are often still living in these communal uh, apartments or sort of barracks for new workers, migrants to the city. So, I mean, contrary to the sort of high ideals of the communist classless society, there is something almost like class still going on here. Uh, mm. Some of the most interesting work that I've read recently about sort of the everyday life of this period is about uh, young women who come from pre- predominantly come to the city from the countryside to work as nannies and domestic servants for more established urban sort of workers and Soviet middle class. Uh, and for example, like the nanny would have to sleep somewhere in this two bedroom apartment. She would often be on a cot in the kitchen or perhaps even in like a closet type area. So, so all this, it, it doesn't, it still seems, look, things are getting better, but it still seems a little austere. Um, but your, your work looks at one particular part of everyday life and that's, and that's sex. Um, it seems from what you're describing to me that, that that in my head it's still like buttoned up, like people aren't having a lot of sex, like right? Is this what what have you discovered when you're when you're looking through um, discussions of sex at this time? The biggest problem for young people in terms of having sex was uh, where to do it, and yeah, because like if you lived, even if you, I mean, if you lived, if you still lived in a communal apartment, obviously. That would be problematic. But also if you shared an apartment with your family and you didn't even have that many rooms, like it was very common for sort of a young man or a young woman to be sleeping like on a pull-out couch in the living room. Hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, where would you take somebody? Yeah, yeah. Like In America, like I think one of the reasons why people have such a cult of the car is that the car for a teenager is their own personal space that is hidden away from from the eyes of their family and a lot of people have some of their first sexual experiences in cars um in korea where you and i first met um they have very cramped um living quarters where uh you might have if you have a personal bedroom it might not be a bedroom in the day it might be a, a living room or a study that then converts into a bedroom at night and young people when they want to have sex they go to love hotels or they go to dvd rooms or uh, private rooms that you can rent out in in, in in the public space. And that's where young people have sex or, or do bad things. So where do people have sex in the fall? They can't do it in the communal houses. That is true. Um, well, you can't, you, hmm, let's not go, let's not uh, get ahead of ourselves. So there are okay. parts, there are places in the communal houses where maybe you can. Um, okay. Uh, balconies. Hmm. and uh, stairwells, and in some of the older apartments, particularly in somewhere like uh, Leningrad, which is what Petersburg is called after the revolution, 
um, they have these big kind of like entrance ways to these buildings. Uh, and the, I mean, Moscow has a lot of these, any, any city that was fairly established before the revolution has these, uh, like they've often turned these kind of big aristocratic buildings into communal or even single family apartments. And it leaves just kind of like weird, awkward spaces in and around the front door or the stairwells. And uh, people in their memoirs talk about this being where they had their first experiences. Um, there, you know, the, the Soviet film industry was still heavily censored. They're not going to show a lot of this directly, um, but you have a lot of really intimate conversations between young couples and these romantic films in the area happening on these stairwells. So like, so like the, the, the Soviet thaw version of like make out peak is a vestibule in a communal house. Yes. Uh, basements. There's I, in like sex crime reports. I see a lot of concern about the basements. So this, the Soviet Union in the Thaw era has this uh, culture of the dvor, which means like courtyard. So Soviet planning um, is deliberately designed to make people like, you know, part of their community. And so a lot of these new houses are being built in an almost circular or square uh, way with a big courtyard in the middle where people are meant to hang out. And there's like maybe playground equipment or exercise equipment or just like a grassy area. Um, ideally there should be sport equipments for like young people to be doing something, you know, productive with their time. But if you look at the, the documents from the archive, what's actually happening here is young people are hanging out and drinking and someone's playing a guitar <laughs> and it's noisy and annoying people. Um, and often where these, you know, drinking parties lead is people going off to find a place to have sex in a sort of dark area in a vestibule yeah, on a balcony that's 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 really fascinating. I just I just want to linger over that because that's that's so different to the image that I had in my head. So there's these courtyards, these public spaces that like in brutalist public housing now like are just no go zones um, that are filled with young people hanging out and like having mm -hmm. fun and doing bad things. And then when they pair off, they go to these vestibules or to to basements to 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 make out. Yeah. And I would just caution you to say, like, I think a lot of party workers would, would agree with you that they are doing bad things. I'm not sure that they would themselves say that they were bad. Right. I mean, um, bad things and good, you know, <laughs> the, the good bad, the good kind of bad. Right. right. <laughs> um, bad, like so, the 60s bad, right? Yeah, the 60s bad. So they're having their own like 60s moments in the courtyards and in the vestibules. Where else do people go to to meet each other and to 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 make out? Because it's one of those things like like a lot of sex is always in some ways a little bit bad, but there's a problem because to make a family, you, you need to embark on this kind of dangerous, uh, sometimes bad, uh, difficult experience where you're like playing with fought with a fire, sexual desire. But wh where's that happening in the thought besides these, these courtyards? Yeah. So, I mean, also there's, a, and this is one of the things that I think is interesting that I, I don't have like statistically significant uh, data on yet. Uh, um, but like, say, in memoir literature and stuff, it seems to be uh, potentially more prevalent than in the West. You have a culture of like cooperation with friends. So more established families in the cities will often have a country home called a dacha. It's basically like a small house away from the city. Um, parents, older people often retire to them. Like there'll be like a garden plot there. Uh, and parents will often go on the weekends there. And if you, your friend, if you 
have a partner and your friend's parents say go to their dasha, your your friend might offer you their parents' place. Um, or even if you're like if your friend's parents are just gone for a few hours, they might offer you that place and someone will keep a lookout and wait for someone to come home and like let you know that, oh, it's tight, you gotta hurry up and get out. Um, or if you have a friend who you know works in a construction site, they might know, they might be able to sort of help you out and f- help you find a place for a while. I mean, all this sounds like a little familiar to me from my high school years. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. like somebody's parents are gone for the weekend. You you have an illicit party, like, or or you know, somebody's you know parents are 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 gone for 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 the afternoon. You can you can hang out and 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 do what you're going to do in their in their backyard or 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 someplace like that. Like this this seems all very familiar. Right. And just in the Soviet period, the, the, the interesting thing about the Soviet uh, sort of case is that it's not just for high school students, right? This is going well mm-hmm. into adulthood. And in fact, okay. there's a lovely film called uh, Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears. And it shows a moment of this where a woman with an adult daughter um, is, uh, you know, she's a single mother and she uh, falls, she's falling in love with the man that she met on the train. Uh, like they've been dating for a while, right? And uh, there's a scene where they've clearly just had sex um, and the, the daughter comes home earlier than they expected and they've been on a cot in the living room. Um, so mm-hmm. they're very quickly trying to like put the cot back and make it a, a couch again. It was a pullout bed. Right? They're trying to make it a couch again before she walks in. It's like this comical scene. Uh, but you can imagine there's like some real, uh, everybody, a lot of people might recognize that moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not, it's, it's, it's that everybody down from, you know, from teenagers up to 30 and 40 year olds, everybody has to play this kind of game of helping one another out to, to find spaces to have sex in. Right. Right. And so where do people meet each other? Like, how do, how do you get, like, I mean, it's the big question, like, like of, of, of teenage and, and young adult life, like where, where do you find receptive sexual partners and how do you like act to get them to have sex with you in, in the thought? Is this changing as well? Right. Um, it is. So the the ideal, like what the party would like is you should uh, meet somebody at work and get to know them over time by working together and forming character together and falling in love and you know going after work and doing cultured activities together. Discussing how to make screws better. Like you're in a screw factory, you meet a, a, a pretty person who also works in the screw factory and you bond over your devotion to make more screws and to improve your screw making skills. Yeah. Or like that's how it begins. And then after work, you start hanging out, maybe reading a book together, going to a lecture together and discussing it afterward. Um and there are some people for whom that happened. Uh, there are also people who, through, uh, especially in the thaw, there was an expectation of a lot of uh, what they called civil society work. Um, and this meant like working through the Komsomol, volunteering. And the Komsomol, by the way, is the Young Communist League. This is like your stepping stone to becoming a Communist Party member. And by this period, everybody is expected to really participate in the Komsomol. And if you don't, they, they, they ask why. When you apply to college, you should have some recommendations from the Komsomol, right? <laughs> uh, but this also involves a lot of trips. You might go on trips with other people of your age. You might go on camping trips. You go on volunteering trips. There's a huge push to get young people to go out 
and cultivate new lands. They call it the virgin lands. Um, and there's all kinds of stories. They're encouraging stories of young people who have met on the virgin lands. Okay, this all sounds very virtuous. Like it sounds very like, and it does. Like I know that that, that sex isn't bad, but like it's it's you know it's sometimes, especially when you're a teenager, a little bit more exciting when it's bad. Like there was there other other ways to meet people like than to go on the Soviet youth group camping trip to, you know. To, to start a potato plot in, in Kazakhstan? Uh, well, I, I would uh, uh, hesitate to say that everybody who was going on those trips was behaving virtuously there. There's all kinds of complaints <laughs> of the trouble that they get into in these trips, believe me, and, and the way that they corrupted the, the rural youth. Okay, so it's like, I, I'm imagining it's like a 1960s sex comedy, <laughs> like where <there's, laughs> You know, they have to they, they have to plan a party in the Consumol uh, uh, boss, you know, it has to be kept right. in the dark. Okay. Okay. Or the Consumol boss in a small town, uh, you know, there's only a handful of those guys. Uh, they all know each other. Like, they, they very well might be in on this. Okay. Uh, probably this up above later. But, um, yeah, so a, a little bit closer to home, the Consumol or just like the local factories often, they all have these cultural institutions as part of them, like these clubs that are, again, they exist for a very virtuous purpose of encouraging uh, culture to leisure, that, like dance lessons and you know, uh, organized dances are considered a, a good way to spend your time, much better than drinking in the dvor, right? And these dances are super popular. In fact, some of the, the sociological research that's done in the 60s that asks people about their, their practices, this is one of the reasons we know that people were having more premarital sex, for example, um, also asks people why they got married or where asked married couples where they met each other. And most of them said at these dances. And, um, and yeah, and you did not have to be a member of the consumal to go to the dance, even if they had uh, organized it. So there was all kinds of people there. Often these dances were tacked on at the end of a lecture, some political lecture on you know, the position of the Soviet Union in the world. This is the Cold War era after all. Um, and then after the lecture's dance, which was way more popular, some people clearly came for the dance, in, like if they tolerated the lecture, um, or they might have just waited until the lecture was over and then come late. And the clubs, this is perhaps one of the reasons that uh, you know I began looking into this was that these are the years of the sexual revolution in the West, of course, right? And one of the explanations that Western observers have for the sexual revolution is that market forces were pushing, you know, interest in sexuality in media and in new institutions like you know, I mean, obviously the more explicit ones like porn theaters and things. Um, but uh, in theory, we don't have market forces in the Soviet Union. Well, I found actually that's not the case. Like these clubs had budgets. They had to mm-hmm. fulfill the plan. They had to meet their budgets. And the way they did that was charging. And nobody wanted to pay much to, to listen to a lecture on the Soviet Union in the world, right? But they were willing to pay a little bit more to go to these dances that were more fun. Right, right. So 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 just just to 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 sum that up, like when we look at the sexual revolution in the nineteen sixties, one of the arguments for that is that there's a lot of places that are making money from selling sex. There's places that are selling, you know, sexy magazines. There's places that that are selling the prospect of sex, like dance halls and pornography theaters. Um, but if you transplant that to Russia, like it's there's not supposed to be a ton of market forces. But you're saying actually, look, these clubs 
where people are, you know, ostensibly going to hear improving lectures on the, 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 the position of the Soviet Union in the world are actually competing um, to give people, you know, more enticing entertainment than a, than a, than a lecture. And those are dances. Yeah, exactly. And, and okay, this, this might sound a bit crude, but like how raunchy are these dances? Cause like in my experience, like there are dances and then there's like, dances like what 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 sort like can you get a sense of like how permissive these these dances tend to be yeah so you know coming from the world of 2020 i think we i think it'd be uh we'd find the dances pretty tame um from the descriptions that i've read there's no grinding uh, not quite like they're much more worried about them picking up moves that they've seen of you know western dances or playing western music and Mm. And one of the one of the reasons that this gets into trouble is um, they're of course encouraging uh, local bands to play like volunteer amateur bands to to play the music, and they, they consider this better than just playing a record. You know, the ones in the small towns have the same record; they're playing over and over again. Everyone's confused, uh, complaining about how boring it is. Um, but again, part of the thought is this: encouraging at all levels of society more and more participation in civil life. And one of the ways for young people to do this, again, this is a form of leisure to see as more culture, is to, to play their own music. But when you have people playing the music, uh, they can improvise. They can play sounds <laughs> maybe they weren't supposed to, and they yeah. do this. And and people love it. Like they love early, like early in the thought, even the, the even before the thought in the Stalin years, like the the tango and the foxtrot were kind of verboten. They were seen as Western and decadent. Uh, but, but by the early thought, when I'm the sources that I'm reading were saying that even quite far from Moscow and the, the Ural Mountains, uh, people are ex- expect to hear this kind of music and do these dances all the time. Um, and the, the kind of dances that I see sort of conservatives complaining about sound kind of like, if you think about the, fix, the 60s, like this boogie-woogie and stuff, just like flailing your arms too much, like in motions they seem is not controlled enough, so giving way to your passions, stuff like that. Okay, so they're having dances and they're listening to garage bands and they're they're dancing with a little bit too much uh, uh, vigor. How, how do we know that, they're, that these are sexual places? Like, how, how, how do we know that? And is that new? Yeah, so a lot of the dances in the Stalin era were uh, not specific to couples. There were a lot of like folk dancing, a lot of group, sort of collective folk dancing. Uh, it was a lot more structured and organized. And there were um, there there were always uh, sort of these supervisors called uh, educators. I guess that's <laughs> the word for it. Not, not teachers, but educators. Like they had this impossible to translate word vaspitani. It means like moral education. Like building in German, um, and it's all over the place in the thought. There, the idea is to to cultivate or to sort of educate morally the people, even adults, to be proper communists. Like that's how we're going to get to communism. Um, and but yeah, I get the impression that over time in the thought, especially in these clubs where they really wanted to make the money, like the educators were encouraged to. Uh, step back the supervisory role a little bit. Um, and then people told us in surveys, even at the time, that this is where they met partners. 
for police. Uh, there's a lot of correspondence in the early 60s that I've read between the Mall and organs of the police or the prosecutor's office about youth crime. And they're very concerned about a lot of times young men in particular will drink before the dance to get the courage to ask young ladies to dance. And uh, this leads to all kinds of mayhem. Um, and by mayhem, I mean uh, drunk guys showing up. And uh, you know, the, the proper Soviet lady was expected to refuse to dance or even socialize with somebody who had been drinking. Um, that is not always how it worked out. Often those guys were happier and more interesting, and uh, as a result, uh, found the attention of young ladies more easily. I mean, it worked. So getting the courage beforehand worked. But so, Brendan, what's striking to me is how familiar this story sounds. You have dances, you have back rooms, you have like an easing up of, of, of polite morality around sex amongst the young. What does this tell us about, how does this change how we see the Soviet Union? Or like, how does, how is this, is this still Soviet? Is this just a story of, of the world liberalizing its sexual mores all at once? Or is there, is there still something particularly like distinctive about how this is happening in the Soviet Union? Right. Um, yeah. So I, I should show my cards a little bit here and admit that part of what I'm trying to do as a historian is to show uh, people, especially to show my potential future undergrads, um, that the Soviet Union is not that different and certainly not that um, sort of evil as a place. You know, these were not people who were out to get us as Americans. They were mostly yeah. people trying to live their lives. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think that even, or perhaps more so today than even 10 years ago or so, this is a message that still needs to uh, reach parts of the American public. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of on one side. But on the other side, there are some things that are uniquely Soviet about this. Um, I think the material and cultural sort of conditions of possibility for this uh, loosening or for these particular sites of uh, like new opportunities for young people to explore their intimate lives uh, were different. Uh, the problem of private space that we talked about, uh, the relative poverty, uh, this led to uh, the uh, like it sounds to me like people's friends were a little bit more involved in their in their friends' uh, love lives um, certainly than sort of in when we were teenagers and young adults. I think perhaps maybe our parents' generation might have experienced something similar. You know, not everybody had a car in the fifties. That was actually a bit of a privilege. Uh, and I imagine uh, I shouldn't. Looking at like Beth Bailey has a great book about this sex in the heartland about the sexual revolution, not in the big cities and among the super wealthy, but in other parts of America. Um, I lost my train of thought. Where it's going? Oh yeah, what is uniquely Soviet about it? So the the emphasis on cultured leisure as well. So like a lot of these opportunities that people are getting in the the you know come small dances and stuff, I think comes from the uh, real heavy emphasis on uh, culture with a capital C and young people are expected to, after work, you're supposed to uh, study and uh, do, you know, good hobbies, you know, play music, go dancing, stuff like that. And this encourages people to actually think and talk a lot about love. A lot of these books they're encouraged to read are about love Hmm. and these dances, of course, uh, are places where people are meeting 
and and they're kind of in, they seem to be encouraging that. Yeah. So there, there's there's like a there's a sense that the sexual revolution in America, in, in some ways, is is hedonistic. It's materialistic. It's frivolous. It is. Um, something that's, that's purely the body, and so you're saying that one of the ways that this is different is 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 that there's this focus on 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 culture. That the fact that people are meeting at dances that precede a lecture is not just window dressing. That there's actual that this kind of changes the valence of what sex is. That there's kind of like a a, a seriousness to it, or 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 like a, 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 a you know like a, a an artistic appreciation to it. Is that is that like you know, also this is also my naive, like you know, stereotype in my head. But I imagine like Russian people getting drunk and 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 having you know doing their 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 bad things, but also like having long deba- Dostoevskyan debates about the nature of love. Is this is this what you're talking about? Yes, um, and and that is happening. And I, I like I want to come back to this question of the hedonism and the sexual revolution in America as well. Um, yeah, but the but you know, debating, staying up all night, debating love um, is uh, like is definitely happening. In fact, I'm one of the sources that I'm working with now, like scrambling to work with while I have a little bit of time before I have to leave Russia, is letters that people wrote to Molodai um, Mordio, which is one of the the Komsomol journals. It's a literary journal, and hmm. people wrote letters. And like, admittedly, we have to be serious about who these people are. Right? These are people who are really getting the message. These are people who are involved enough in kind of communist life as the party would like them to be, that they are writing uh, a literary journal about their, their reading experience. Uh, not, a, not every working class person is doing this, uh, but a lot of people are, and they're, they're writing and talking about the stories and the novels from this journal that they loved and, and why. And, Multiple people are saying that they, they spend all night arguing with their spouse about the story, about the, the love story in it, about, you know, there was actually not a, a story, but a, a journalist piece about a divorce that went um, pages and pages and pages about the need for sex education so that young couples know how to, like, have a meaningful and pleasurable life together. And uh, some couple in Norilsk, which is this town in the, the Arctic that uh, just exists to like mine nickel, um, you know, wrote how that they they stayed up all night arguing about this story. Wow, I mean that's that is so different to my view of like the concrete brutalist USSR. So you have like a couple in this Arctic nickel mining town who together read a journalistic article about sex education, spend all night arguing about it, and then write a letter into a literary magazine in which they describe their argument. And, and thank them for publishing that, for like encouraging them to you know, become closer this way. Uh, can we go back to yes. this question of the hedonism and the Western sexual revolution? Because I want to, yes. again, like part of my um, project here of like suggesting that the, the differences are not that great, um, is pointing out that the, this image of the sexual revolution we have is very much from the media of the time and from the kind of sensationalist and often hostile media um, that has developed since. You know, the sexual revolution was kind of, mm. I don't want to say betrayed, but, um, you know, looked at, looked down upon, particularly from the 80s onwards. And, uh, you know, this... 
presentation of it is about really about sort of hedonism in the negative sense is is really something that comes from its cultural like its conservative critics or just kind of people who felt kind of above it. And this is certainly the way that yeah. Soviets looked at it. The Soviets were reading the Western press and had a lot to say about the licentiousness of capitalism. Uh, but I think for most people, and I, again, to, like, pro, to plug Beth Bailey's book, uh, I think this is an argument of hers that I'm stealing from a bit here. Um, for most people, what it really meant was simply uh, the, the right to like serial monogamy without judgment, the right to engage in, to have sex with someone you love, whether you're married yet or not, and to, you know, perhaps break up and date somebody else afterwards. And especially if you're a woman, not be a student to be slut, essentially, because you've had sex before. Uh, like, that's something that I think most people in the Western Europe and U.S. now expect of a partner so that they probably have, yeah. if you meet someone in their 20s, they probably have sex before and that's not something to be worried about. You know, in the 50s, that was, especially for a woman, not uh, an assumption to be easily made. And, and this is really the, what comes out of the sexual revolution in the last, uh, it's, it's largely what comes out of this period in the Soviet Union as well. Great. Fantastic. Well, thank, thank you so much uh, for joining me, Brendan McElmeal. Um, and uh, thank you to everybody who listens. Thank you to Duncan Barton, who made our images, and uh, Jonathan Lear, who made our music. Uh, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tell your in-laws or uh, people who are related to your serial monogamist of choice because they seem to like the show. Join us next week um, where we'll be talking um, about uh, feminism and parenting in the 20th century. Speak to you then. 